Please stay standing for the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, and which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by this blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we, are, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Well, good morning, Salt Church. Uh, if I haven't got a chance to meet you, my name is Jonathan Randall. I'm one of the pastors on staff. So glad that you guys are with us here this morning. If you've got a Bible or a phone app, open that up to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, we're going to be in the passage that you just heard. And buckle up, uh, because this section of Scripture is just loaded. Uh, it is filled to the brim with all kinds of goodness, and I'm excited to unpack it this morning. Well, let me begin uh, this way. Have any of you guys ever been to the happiest place on earth? The happiest place on earth. And no, I'm not talking about Finland. If you Google the happiest place on earth, Google will tell you it's Finland. Uh, But I'm talking about Disney World, right? Disney World, the happiest place on earth. That's a brilliant marketing uh, uh, strategy, right? Like, can you imagine the guys in uh, the board of executives for Disney? They're in a boardroom and they're like, how do we get people to come to Disney World? I know, let's call it the happiest place on earth. That'll get everyone to come, right? And it's worked. 58 million people, 58 million people will go to Disney World every year. Guys, that's the state of Colorado visiting Disney World 10 times in one year. It's it's very, very popular. Uh, I also find it interesting in our culture, it's become kind of a thing that when a team wins the Super Bowl, they always have that question like, you've just won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do now? I'm going to go to Disney World, which I just think is kind of funny because it's like, hey, you've just achieved the pinnacle of your career. Your happiest moment is right now. You just won the Super Bowl. What do you want to do? Oh, I'm not really happy enough. I need to go to the happiest place on earth and find that happiness. I can think of a lot of other things to do, but whatever, you're going to go to Disney World. Anyway, my real question is this. Is Disney World the happiest place on earth? Or is it overrated? Is it expensive? Is it a giant kind of letdown, right? Uh, I love what uh, comedian Jim Gaffigan uh, says about Disney World. He says, uh, imagine, Disney World is like this. Imagine you are standing in line at the DMV and that's it. That, that's Disney World, right? Uh, and, and he goes on to say, he has this hilarious line, he's like, but Disney World might be magical because I've never been to a place where I can sweat all day and still somehow gain weight. Uh, and being from Florida, I can testify 
to that as a reality. I got to go to Disney quite a few times, and I can tell you, it is not the happiest place on earth. You basically have to use your kid's college fund to get tickets there, uh, and then you may be able to get to go on two rides because you're standing in line the whole time, and then you're surrounded by kids who are complaining because the person who's supposed to show up and be Moana like just didn't show up, and so those kids are throwing a fit. Honestly, the best thing about Disney might be the air-conditioned bus ride back to the hotel. Um, you know, for a destination that's dubbed the happiest place on earth, why is it that so many people leave that park broke, sunburned, and wondering where was the happiness that, that was promised to me, right? Now, I bring this up because I think, I think many Christians experience the Christian life in some of the same ways that visitors experience Disney World. We come to Jesus, and instead of finding happiness, we end up miserable, We end up hypercritical. We end up kind of disillusioned on this whole Jesus thing where following him has kind of turned into going to Disney World. It's all hype. It costs too much. It's kind of a giant letdown. But here's my thing. Isn't Christianity supposed to lead to joy? Isn't isn't following Jesus supposed to lead to our happiness? And in case you think I'm making this up and stole a page from Joel Osteen's book, and I'm just going to preach the prosperity gospel. Guys, Jesus' own, let me show you scripture. Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon, how does he kick that sermon off? He uses these things called beatitudes, and he goes around saying, like, blessed are you people over here, and blessed are you guys, and blessed are you over here. But guys, that word blessed, you translate that, that word means happiness. Actually, it means a double happiness. It's happy, happy. So in other words, Jesus, when he comes on the scene, his most famous sermon, how does he, what's his intro? You guys are happy, and you're happy, and you get to be happy. I'm promising happiness. Jesus says in John's gospel, this is his words verbatim, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. Jesus' joy would be in us, and that your joy may be full. Because if those verses are true, and they are, why does it seem like so many Christians are walking around like their happiness is on empty? Why does the happiest person on earth, Jesus Christ, seem to have followers who miss out on the happiness of the one that they claim to follow? Because this matters for us because it's not hard to see that our world is in a constant pursuit of happiness and yet coming up empty often. Right? Just go to social media. People are convinced on social media that all you need is a new diet, a new exercise plan, a new medication, a new spouse, a new house, a new car, a new job, a new vacation to Disney or a thousand other destinations. That's what I really need, and I'll be happy. There's just one problem with that, right? It works for a little bit, but then the feeling fades, and then you're right back to the next dopamine hit to try to find happiness again. And here's the quiet part that no one wants to say out loud in the church. It's true for us as Christians, too. We just sprinkle some Christian ease on it, right? Like, we're like, I'm convinced that I could be happy if I just got that new Bible with the moleskin and the journal margins on the side that I can write in. I would just be happy if I could find that new Christian book that would change my life, or I could go to that new Christian conference that would take me to cloud nine because it'd be all hype in the worship experience. If I could just find that new sermon that would convict me or that new home group where I'd finally find community or that new church altogether, that's, that's what I really need. Anything other than Jesus is what I need to be happy, right? 
And here's the thing, it works for a while. And then it wears off, that feeling wears off, and Christians are right back for the next spiritual dopamine hit to try to find happiness. See, it's easy to see that our world struggles to find happiness. They're looking for it in all the wrong places. That's easy to see. But for Christians, I think we struggle to find happiness too because we're convinced happiness is Jesus plus something else, right? Instead of finding all of our joy in Christ, it's Jesus plus something else. Guys, one of the most natural outflows of following Jesus, one of the most natural outflows of knowing Christ, of all that he accomplished, it should lead to joy, It should lead to rejoicing. It should lead to happiness. Following Jesus is not like going to Disney where you expect happiness, but somehow fail to find it. We are meant to find all of our happiness in Christ. The million-dollar question that the first 11 verses of Romans 5 are going to answer for us is, how does that happen? How does that work? What is it that we have in Jesus that should cause us to be happy? With that, let's turn to the scripture this morning. There's three times in our passage that the word rejoice is used, um, or some of your translations might say boast. What that word means is it's a picture of somebody who has this uh, deep-seated happiness that when they walk down the street, their head is held high, they have a giddiness, they have a free spirit. It's like they're, walk, they're lighter than air. They're like walking on air. There's a sense of freedom. There's a sense of contentment. There's a sense of peace. They feel untouchable. It's a deep-seated happiness that he's talking about there. So if the text tells us to rejoice three times, then of course there must be three reasons to do that. So uh, let's explore those three reasons together. The first is this. Rejoice that God works to make your past, present, and future secure. Rejoice that God works to make your past, present, and future secure. So that should take us to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read the first two verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So essentially these verses are saying, hey, since you've been justified, then there's these things that are true about you that should lead to our joy and our happiness. Now, before I unpack what those things are, let me just remind us of what justification is, because it's key to this text. Justification is two things. It's both the forgiveness of your sin and it's Christ's righteousness given to you. Theologians will oftentimes call this the great exchange. Your sin is placed on Christ and Christ's righteousness is placed on you. And you need both. It's crucial that you have both because there is no amount of sin that can exhaust the forgiveness of God. And there's never a day where Christ's righteousness isn't enough to earn heaven. You need both of them. Think of it this way. Let's say you applied to be a ski instructor at kind of a middle-of-the-road ski resort, uh, and you, you, know, you applied for the job, but there's just one problem. You're not an American citizen. You, uh, you have a criminal background. You've, you've done some shady stuff. And when you apply, you get caught. All of this comes to the surface. And you get arrested, and you get put in jail, and then you get uh, thrown in, uh, or you're at the court, and the judge is about ready to declare you guilty, but in walks Michaela Schifrin. If you don't know who Michaela Schifrin is, she's one of the best alpine skiers of all time. 
She's a two-time gold medalist. She's won more World Cups than any other female in history. She's one of the best skiers of all time. And imagine she walks in and she says, I'll take the punishment. I'll pay the fines. I'll go to prison. I'll do whatever it takes to get rid of this criminal record. That'd be amazing, right? Unbelievable grace for her to do that. But what if she didn't stop there? What if she took off her gold medals and put them on you? What, what if she took her own resume and scratched her name off and put that, your name on there so it said that you had won all these World Cups? What if she gave you her American citizenship? Do you think you're gonna not get the job at the ski resort? Well, of course you would, right? You're, you don't have a criminal background anymore. You now have an American citizen, citizenship. You can work legally. But, but you know what else is true? Like, would, would you walk around with that uh, mentality at this ski resort that you didn't deserve to be there, that you needed to earn your keep to work at this ski resort? No, why would you do that? Because you have, you have Michaela Schifrin's resume that says you are overqualified to work for this middle-of-the-road ski resort, Right? The same is true for justification for us. If you are applying to get into heaven, not only has your sin been forgiven, but you have the very resume of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You're in. His righteousness has been credited to you and your sins have been forgiven. That is justification. Now, I, we could literally go home. That is enough to give you all the reason you need to rejoice but Paul's not done in this text. He's going to show us that justification ultimately leads to some other things. And uh, there's three things specifically that he mentions here. And these three things secure our past, our present, and our future. Let me show you this in the text. It says in verse 1 that justification means we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's past tense. You have peace with God already. In other words, we used to be, you are not spiritually neutral with God. You used to be an enemy of God. And yet God has made peace with you and made you his friend. Guys, this is not the peace of God, although that's a real thing that the scripture talks about. The peace of God gives you the ability to like walk through life when it's crumbling. This is the peace with God, meaning because you have a restored relationship with God, everything in life will be okay. Even when it is crumbling, because you have the peace with God, you can have the peace of God. It also says in, in verse 2, that justification means we have uh, also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Guys, that's present tense. That's right now. Um, so past tense, you've been, uh, you've had peace with God. Present tense, you've obtained access into grace. This means right now you have an all access pass to unlimited grace. Anytime you sin, you have a card that you can swipe and get access to unlimited grace. Uh, every time I go to the airport, I always want to get in the TSA pre-check line uh, so you can just avoid the hassle, right? Like, you don't have to take your shoes off. You don't have to take your laptop out. It sounds amazing, especially when you're waiting at DIA and the, you just see the line and then, the, like, the pre-check one is, like, no one's in it. I'm like, oh, I would love to get in that. But somebody's going to throw me out because I've not paid for that membership and I'm too cheap to do that. But what if somebody did pay for that membership and said, I'll renew this every year? That'd be amazing, right? You could just make a beeline and get through the airport. Guys, this is what it's like to have this kind of access. You have the TSA pre-check into heaven. No one can tell you that you don't belong in that line. Jesus renews that membership for life. You always have access to grace. Lastly, it says uh, in verse two, that justification means we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
Now that's future tense. We rejoice right now, but it's in hope of the glory of God that is to come. So what is this future glory? It's when Jesus comes back. It's when our bodies are made new and we are resurrected and and Jesus wipes out Satan's sin and death forever and everything is made new and the curse of sin is undone and we don't know temptation anymore and we get to see God face to face. That is the future glory. But here's the thing. It's not just the glory of God. That's our, our future. Like that's where history is going. That's our destiny. So church, what this means is if you've placed your faith in Jesus and you've been justified, your past, present, and future is secure. Your past does not have to haunt you or define you anymore. Your present sin does not uh, uh, deny you access to grace. And your future is certain because God's glory is certain. I think part of our world's problem with happiness is people try to pursue it by gaining security over their lives, right? But the truth of the scriptures is, and what they're teaching us here is that because of justification, you don't have to pursue happiness. You already have it. Why? Because through Jesus, your past, present, and future is secure. The security you're looking for by chasing happiness is already available to you in Jesus. Now, it's at this point that some might want to say, okay, I get that, John. I get that my joy should be found in Jesus. I get that justification leads to all these things, but I'm just dealing with a lot. It it took a lot for me to come to church this morning, and now you want me to rejoice. Like, the pain and the problems and the trials and the suffering in my life almost make that task impossible, right? And if that's not you this morning, it will be you. It'll be all of us, because suffering is unavoidable. So what does rejoicing look like in the hardest points of our life. This is where Paul goes next. It leads me to my second reason for rejoicing. Rejoice that God won't waste your suffering. Rejoice that God won't waste your suffering. Picking the text back up in Romans, verses three and four, it says this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Rejoice that God won't waste your suffering. I think the thing that strikes me the most about this passage is how opposite it is from the way our world tells you to deal with suffering. Paul just said, rejoice in suffering. That's not the message we're getting from our culture at all. Our culture tells you to do whatever you want in suffering, right? Uh, some of our culture will, will tell you, hey, you just, you just need to get through the hard times. You just need to buckle down, bite your lip, grit your teeth, and just push through the suffering. Tell yourself it could always be worse, and that's how you will get through it. Because the problem with that is what happens when you don't get through it? What happens when your personal resolve isn't enough to push through the suffering? That you'll feel defeated. The suffering will overwhelm you, and your life will crumble. Or worse, what happens when it is enough to push through the suffering and you come out on the other side overcoming it? The problem is, is you will end up being uh, jaded and judgmental and prideful towards anyone else that's suffering because you've made it to the other side. You're just going to tell people to stop crying, stop blubbering, get your act together. That's going to be your posture towards them. Others might deal with uh, suffering by trying to avoid it, right? Oh, you're going through suffering? 
You need to do anything you can to like distract yourself from it and escape from it and just deal with the pain, right? You, you know, hey, treat yourself. You're going through a hard time. You do you at this point, right? So go binge Netflix. Uh, go waste money on your credit card on things you can't buy on Amazon. Go, go get another six pack and drown your sorrows away. Go on Instagram for the thousandth time in the last hour. Anything you can do to just get your mind distracted and away from the pain. There's just two problems with that. One, those things won't actually take away your suffering. And two, they can lead to greater degrees of suffering, kind of like a suffering hangover. You're suffering, and so you choose to do things that are just gonna make you suffer even more. Instead, the Christian view is to rejoice in suffering. Why? Notice what the text says. It's because it produces something. Now, I wanna be clear. Notice what it does not say. This text does not say rejoice for your suffering as if you're just supposed to be so thankful for the pain. Like, dear Lord, thank you so much for this hurting season right now. No, that, that's not what he's saying. He's saying rejoice in your suffering. In other words, you are supposed to be thankful for what the hurt and the pain produce. Because what that means is that if you are suffering, it's okay to cry. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to shout. It's okay to get angry. It's okay to hurt. In your suffering, the pain is real. And yet, at the same time, we can be joyful and excited and grateful for what that suffering is going to produce. You can be happy and sad at the same time. Think of it this way. If you're working out, no, no one really likes working out, right? Just going to any gym. Nobody is doing bench presses with this big old smile on their face, right? Like, they look like they're constipated and in, in pain, Right? Nobody's doing a crunch and is like, I love this. Nobody's doing that thousandth burpee and is like, this is my favorite activity. Nobody likes working out, right? And anybody who has worked out knows the pain it takes on your body, right? Yet, if somebody's choosing to work out, they also can rejoice and be excited for the gains that they're beginning to make in the weight room. They can be excited and joyful and happy at the overall health and well-being that working out is bringing and producing in their life. Because this is what Paul means by rejoicing in suffering. You can acknowledge that suffering hurts, it's painful, and yet at the same time rejoice in what suffering produces. So what does it produce? Well, Paul says it produces three things in verses three through four. He says suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. I wanna walk through uh, each of these. So the first thing that suffering produces is endurance, or other translations will say that it produces patience. Now, when you think about endurance and when you think about patience, what activity comes to mind? Waiting, right? Waiting. Uh, and, and here's the thing. The way you learn endurance, the way you learn patience is that if what you're getting on the other end of waiting is worth it, you will put up with any kind of endurance or patience to get that thing. People will stand in line for hours at their favorite restaurant waiting patiently because they know the meal that they're getting is worth it. People will endure long uh, engagements knowing that this future spouse that they're going to marry is well worth the wait. I don't recommend a long engagement, uh, but it's worth the wait uh, to marry that person. So as Christians, what are we waiting for that we'd be willing to endure and be patient in the midst of suffering? It's Jesus. 
It's Jesus. He's the one that we are waiting for. When he comes back and undoes all that has gone wrong in this world, we, it, it allows us to have hope in the midst of that and endure and be patient in the midst of suffering, knowing that when we get to see God face to face, it will be well worth the wait. There's a lot of people who have suffered um, and suffered well, they talk about actually experiencing the presence of God in very deep and personal ways, more so than they did outside of suffering. How does that work? How's that possible? Well, when, when we suffer, we're made aware that Jesus, we're supposed to put our hope in him, but also when you suffer, you begin to realize that Jesus really is your only hope. And when Jesus is your only hope, guys, you will long for him in ways that you don't outside of suffering. You don't really know that Jesus is all you need until he's all you have. And there's really no other arena other than suffering that can produce that in us. The second thing suffering produces is character. Uh, I don't pretend to know why God allows all of the reasons for suffering and, and, and the, 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 how that works on this side of eternity. But here's what I do know. I think it's the ultimate juke move by God to take the very thing that could destroy us, suffering, the very thing that was brought into our world from sin, suffering, God, ultimate juke move to take that and then somehow make us more like Jesus in the midst of that. That's, that's like the ultimate juke move to Satan, right? The thing that we, he, would, he wants to use to destroy us, God is gonna use to make us look like him. Guys, and part of what it means to look like Jesus is that we face suffering like he does, right? Earlier, I said that Jesus was the happiest man on earth. Did you guys also know Jesus was the saddest man on earth too? The way the scriptures describe him is a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with our griefs. Jesus was no stranger to suffering. And yet the scriptures say, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Because Jesus was a person who could rejoice in suffering. And that's the type of character that God wants to produce in us through our own suffering. See, Jesus didn't just suffer, so, or sorry, Jesus, yeah, didn't suffer just so you don't have to. Like, it's like Jesus suffered, now you don't have to. And that's not the way it works. Jesus suffered so that when you do suffer, you can now be made like him. Your suffering can be redeemed. It's not just random. It's not just wasted. Our circumstances may change for the worst, but Jesus is changing us for the better. A lot of pastors uh, will tell you this quote. They'll say, God is concerned about your holiness and not your happiness. You guys ever heard that quote before? God is concerned about your holiness and not your happiness. And I understand uh, where that quote comes from, but I don't think it really holds up because why is happiness and holiness opposed to each other? Shouldn't they go together? Shouldn't our greatest delight and joy and happiness be found in being made holy? That should be our greatest delight as a Christian. And here, once we grasp that, guys, our suffering can actually lead to greater degrees of joy because we know that suffering only leads us more and more to look like Jesus and become holy. If that's where we anchor all of our happiness into becoming holy, then suffering actually is welcomed because we know what it produces. It produces to make us look more like Jesus. And the third thing that suffering produces is hope. This is really the ultimate goal of suffering. Uh, it, it's this idea that because we know that Jesus is working in us in the midst of our suffering, we can have hope that he's going to take us through suffering to the end. 
and one day come back and eradicate it all. And the way that that works is as we experience uh, deeper, uh, as we experience the Lord in deeper ways through endurance, we also grow in our character to look more like him. And both those things lead to a greater degree of hope because we begin to see that our suffering isn't a waste. Why would God work in us in the midst of our suffering only to destroy all of that work once we come out of suffering? If he's working in us in the midst of suffering, he will take us through to the end. So put this all together, because our culture will tell you to complain in suffering. That's really what they're going to tell you to do. But if you do that, it will produce in you an escapism, where you're just going to run to the world to try to fix your problem. And that's going to lead to like this crossness about life, where you think you got gypped, you think you were treated unfairly, you think you deserve better, and it's just going to lead to a crossness, which is ultimately going to lead to a loss of hope. But scripture tells us the opposite. It tells us to rejoice in suffering. Why? Because of what it produces. It produces endurance. It produces character. It produces more and more and more hope. Now, I say all that, and I know that if you're here this morning and you are actually going through suffering, that can feel like sandpaper on your face, right? Like, it's all truth, no love. And some of you guys here this morning, you are going through the ringer. You have real pain points. You have real problems. You have real trials. You have real hurts. You have real struggles. You have real suffering going on in your life. So so some of you guys here, you're under major financial stress. You don't know where you're going to find the money this month to pay the bills. Some of you guys are walking uh, through a terminal illness with a loved one, and you're really on borrowed time at this point, and the pain is real. Some of you guys, um, your greatest desire right now is honestly just to have a child. And every month that goes by without a pregnancy just stings a little bit more. Some of you guys moved here for the church plant, and your greatest desire is just to have friends. You feel homesick, right? Others of you, you're in a state of singleness, and you want to be married. And singleness is beginning to feel like a curse. Others of you, you had dreams for maybe a career or a job, and they just didn't pan out, and now you're in a job that you hate. Whatever it is, all of us in this room are going through stuff. We're all suffering, and if you're not, you will. And the question that constantly comes up in the pain points of our lives that nags your brain and keeps you up late at night is, does God love me? Does God love me? If I'm going through this, does he love me? And the answer to that question is, guys, we have no idea how much God really does love us. Turn to the scriptures in Romans chapter 5. This is one of the coolest section of verses in all of scripture. Romans chapter 5, 5 through 8. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Church, what this means is that if you are in grief and you are in pain and it has caused you to cry so much that it has blurred your vision, I encourage you this morning, wipe your tears away and look into your heart and see that God loves you because he's poured the spirit out into you. 
And then look to the cross and see that God's love was demonstrated for you because he poured out his own blood for you. God loves you so much. He's proven it by giving his, what's the greatest thing, expression of love that God could do? He gives himself. He gives himself through the spirit and he gives himself through Jesus. Let me show you this. See, when we're suffering, we need to remind ourselves that the Holy Spirit is himself an expression of God's love. How do you know that God loves you? Because the Holy Spirit's been given to you. Okay, and I love the way it says this, though. It doesn't say that the Holy Spirit was a wire transfer into your heart. No, it says that he pours him out. In that culture, that's an extravagant display of, of, of gifting and generosity. It, it, God bank, bankrupted heaven. He gave you the Holy Spirit. It's not some JV version of the Holy Spirit. It, it's not some defective one. It's not only part of him. It's the undivided, undistracted presence of God, 100% living in you in the Holy Spirit. And what that means then is when you suffer, God's presence hasn't gone away from you. It's right there with you, in you, comforting you, sympathizing with you, healing you, holding you close. Guys, later Romans 8 will say that nothing can separate us from the love of God. How do we know that? Because the Holy Spirit's been given to us and he will never leave us. And here's the thing about the Holy Spirit that I love to say. Guys, he doesn't suck at his job. What's the, what's the job of the Holy Spirit? It's to make you look like Jesus. He's the one that ultimately produces endurance and character and hope in you. And guess what, guys? He has a 100% success rate. There's no one that's ever crossed into glory where the Holy Spirit was like, oops, I, I, I didn't quite produce enough endurance. I didn't quite produce enough character. I didn't quite produce enough hope. No, everyone crosses into eternity, filled to the brim with the joy of Christ seeing their Savior face-to-face -face because it's the Holy Spirit that's going to take you every step of the way. But not only do we remind ourselves that the Holy Spirit is an expression of God's love, the Holy Spirit reminds us that Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. Guys, did you catch the way that verses 6-8 describe the love of God? Our love is so transactional in our culture. Can we admit that? But Jesus' love is truly sacrificial, Usually when we love, we want to get something out of it. But Jesus loves us just because that's who he is. Notice he doesn't say that he loves us because we were so lovable. No, we were unlovable. God loves us to make us lovely. The text does not say God loves us when we finally got our act together and came back to the Lord groveling and saying, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I can't believe I screwed up. Lord, would, would you take me back? No, it doesn't say that. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning while we were still rebelling, while we were still not wanting anything to do with God, while we were running away from him, God chased us down with his love. Guys, some people might die for a good person or a good cause even. No one loves the ungodly and the unrighteous and the rebellion but God. In the movie Braveheart, Scotland is trying to gain their freedom from uh, England, right? And uh, William Wallace comes on the scene and he rallies all these Scotsmen. And he's like, let's go fight for our freedom. And they're willing to die on the battlefield with them because they share the same passion that William Wallace has for freedom. But there's this scene in the movie where these Scottish nobles, uh, they betray William Wallace and they sell out for titles and land and uh, uh, money from the English. And so they don't fight. And it actually almost costs William Wallace's life in the battle, but he survives. And then right after that, the scene is he goes on this murderous rampage and he kills all of the Scottish nobles, right? Can you imagine though, what if the story went this way? What if William Wallace 
went over to England, delivered himself up and said, hey, I'm here. I'm here to die. We'll stop fighting you guys if you let these Scottish nobles live a free life in Scotland. That'd be crazy, right? Because that's what Jesus did for us. We are not the Scotsmen rallying around Jesus at the battlefield like, go take it to Satan. No, we are the Scottish nobles betraying, running away from God, going against him. We're on the opposite team. And yet Jesus still dies and pursues us. That's his love for you. Because there's no kind of love like that. If Jesus sees you at your worst and suffered on the cross for you, why would we doubt his love when we are suffering? God's proved his love. He died for you. What Jesus accomplished at the cross isn't just an example for us to follow. He died in our place, which means that when he suffered, it means that suffering and death won't have the last word on our lives. Guys, if I were to die for one of you in this room, all I would do is prolong your life. I couldn't actually save you from your own death. When Jesus dies on the cross, he ultimately saves you from death. Why? Because he rose from the grave, which means that when you die, you will rise from the grave if you place your faith in Jesus. Suffering only finds its true end at the cross. Because this means God's love for you isn't just a theory. It's not just an idea you read in a book. It's real. It's earthy. It's palpable. It's a tangible thing that you can point to in history and say, that has ultimately changed my destiny. No amount of suffering can change that. In fact, suffering can only increase the hope that God really does love us. Now tell me, if, that's, if all that's true... How can we not rejoice? How can our sadness not turn into joy and our soul truly know happiness? Lastly, last reason to rejoice. Rejoice that God will finish what he started. Rejoice that God will finish what he started. This is verse nine, Romans chapter five. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So rejoice that God will finish what he started. What Paul is essentially saying in these verses is that we have nothing to fear because God will always finish what he started. Let me show you this. Paul uses a basic if-then statement, right? If there's evidence for this crazy proposition over here that seems so outlandish, then it makes another proposition over here much more believable. So for example, if you believe that aliens exist, crazy outlandish proposition, um, then you're more than likely going to believe somebody if they tell you that an alien came and picked them up and took them into outer space, right? Well, the same is true for what Paul is talking about here. If we believe that we were enemies of God and then reconciled to him to become friends, do you guys realize how crazy that is? If we can believe that, then we can believe, or we shouldn't have a problem believing that we can be saved from his wrath, right? If Jesus is gonna reconcile you as an enemy and make you his friend, then he isn't gonna somehow reverse course on that in the future and then somehow treat you as an enemy again. To do so would go against what Jesus accomplished on the cross, See, justification really is a future verdict, a future judgment that God has brought into the present. If you've been reconciled with God through Jesus by faith, your judgment day has already happened. It happened at the cross. Therefore, you're saved from the wrath of God. 
So Paul's whole conclusion in this is to rejoice in reconciliation. Why? Because reconciliation is the beginning of the new world crashing into our world. And nothing is going to stop that. Nothing is going to stop God making everything new, including you. God will finish what he starts. If you've been justified, you will be glorified. If you've been reconciled, you will be saved from his wrath. Do you guys not see where happiness can be found? Right? It's not in your circumstances. It's through knowing that Jesus, through him, your past, present, and future is secure. Guys, even if suffering happens in your life, it can't rob you of this joy. Through Jesus, happiness can only be enhanced through suffering because it leads you into greater degrees of knowing how much God loves you. And our happiness can only increase because God won't reverse course. He will see his plan of redemption all the way through the end. My dare to you, Salt Church, is that you would rejoice in the happiness that you can find in Jesus. Let's pray.